Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. It's by all accounts a horribly one-sided battle. Public health war against safer nicotine products, such as vaping devices, heated tobacco products, and oral snus. After decades of hammering the message that smokers must quit or they will die, public health and the tobacco control community are now trying to eradicate the very products millions have successfully used to quit smoking. The war on vaping seems illogical and intractable, but why is that? Joining us today to discuss these issues and more is Cliff Douglas, the director of the University of Michigan Tobacco Research Network and former vice president of tobacco control for the American Cancer Society. Cliff, thanks for joining us today on RegWatch. Thanks, Brent. Pleased to be here. Just this past March, Cliff, you released a public letter addressed to your friends on both sides of the divide over tobacco harm reduction. Before we dive into that, please share with our viewers some of your background in tobacco control, where you've been, and some of your accomplishments. Oh, well, thanks, Brent. I, I have in some ways a, an overly long resume in this area. I got started 33 years ago as the assistant director of the uh, Coalition on Smoking or Health, which at the time was the sort of the only game in town nationally in the United States representing the three large voluntary health organizations, the American Cancer Society, the American Lung Association and American Heart Association. Uh, I worked at that time, for example, on coordinating the national effort to uh, remove smoking from airplanes domestically and then eventually internationally. That's something people tend to be familiar with. But over the years, I, I spent time working in Congress as a special counsel. I'm an attorney by background on tobacco issues. I helped get started, for example, the, uh, the investigation that was conducted by the U.S. Department of Justice into the, the decades of misconduct by the major cigarette companies in the U.S. and around the world that eventually led to a racketeering uh, conviction, a civil conviction, in a federal court in 2006. Uh, I've served as the uh, consulting tobacco control policy advisor to the U.S. Assistant Secretary for Health, who actually oversees the office of the Surgeon General, and then I played the same role for the U.S. Surgeon General. Uh, and I also worked in, uh, over many years as an attorney in litigation, including some of the major cases brought by the state attorneys general in the United States that led to the master settlement agreement in 1998, and also served as an attorney representing or assisting behind the scenes several insiders from the cigarette companies uh, and working with them to uh, assist the Food and Drug Administration and the Department of Justice uh, and others in helping the public understand uh, more about the, the cigarette industry and the, the harms caused by cigarette smoking. And so uh, I've been involved in, in many aspects of this, uh, call it the wars, for, for many years, and, and most recently until last year, had served for five years in the senior leadership at the American Cancer Society, leading tobacco control uh, efforts there for, for the, you know, one of the oldest and largest uh, voluntary health organizations in the U.S., so quite literally, you've been at the epicenter in so many of the places in terms of the battle against tobacco. I've been committed to it uh, to, for a long time because very early on, I, I learned that cigarette smoking uh, was and remains today the leading cause of, of preventable death in the U.S. and also uh, globally. So 
Uh, I felt that there were few uh, issues as important as this where I might be able to make some difference in helping save some lives and, and you know, contribute something uh, back to society. Now, this letter that you wrote, why don't you go ahead and read the title of that uh, to our audience? The title has to do with uh, uh, addressing the internecine uh, warfare within my community, the, the, the battle that's brewed now for over recent years between uh, those, you know, traditional tr- uh, tobacco control organizations and advocates, the kinds of groups whom I, I named and I've worked for for many years. And on the other side, the uh, the, the folks and organizations who are committed to, uh, you know, working toward harm reduction uh, among the, the many tens of millions of smokers in the United States who continue to be addicted to, again, that leading preventable cause of death, but who, you know, have some less hazardous and safer options. But uh, we've, we've got this war between those camps, and it's one that I'd like to, to see us reconcile. And the internecine, it, most people don't understand what that is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it really is kind of a battle within the family. It is. It's a battle within the family. And, you know, families these days uh, extend to uh, uh, stepbrothers and stepsisters, half-brothers and half-sisters. It's a, it's a widespread family. But we are all in this effort focused on, you know, combating the significant harms caused by, by cigarette smoking. And so, you know, folks have a lot of common ground. We're interested in many of the same things. And yet we have, and I'm glad that you're, you know, interested in talking more about it, uh, encountered this this really vitriolic uh, set of differences, you know, between these different camps. And so we, we've kind of lost our way in certain respects. Now, you write in your letter that your community, the national tobacco control community in the U.S. specifically, is letting down tens of millions of adult smokers and that we are now neck deep in intractable intercity warfare. Who is at war and why is that war happening? Yeah, it's a critical question. Well, Brent, for one thing, we have the major health organizations and tobacco control organizations who have been at this, uh, committed to this for many years. The Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids is a a wonderful leading organization. In fact, the the leader of that organization, Matt Myers, was my first boss way back when I was working at the Coalition on Smoking or Health. He was the director. He was my mentor for the first several years of my work in this area. The American Cancer Society, American Heart and Lung Associations, the American Medical Association, the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics focused on, you know, the health concerns of, of, of children and youth. You know, on the other side, we, we have, uh, I think, many thousands, if not actually millions of individual smokers who uh, in many cases self-report that they have you know, been able to quit smoking because they've turned to a variety of vaping products, whether they're the closed systems like Juul or the other types of products uh, that, that you know, include more, more creativity and having to put some things together. Uh, there are organizations uh, devoted to vaping. And then there are also you know, civic leaders, uh, people in government who fall on, on different sides uh, of this debate. You know, Cliff, over the years, there has been this picture that's been built of a tobacco control industry, an industrial complex, if you will, that kind of, you know, exists because of the wins that you were a part of with the master settlement and so forth. 
there's an actual industry of tobacco controllers. Is that part of the this battle too, or could they actually be part of the problem? Uh, I'll, I'll tell you because I straddle both worlds, and you know, in this internecine divide, and I welcome people to again look up the definition of that. But it is within the family. I am part of both worlds. I'm devoted and committed to to both worlds. And and one thing I, I would never do is throw either side under the bus. What I'm most interested in doing is bringing them together at the table. You know, you think of that Venn diagram where you've got these circles overlapping and there's a large one in the middle where folks ought to be coming together where we have some common uh, ground. So the only time that I would tend to use the word industry would be applied to the major manufacturers, well, other manufacturers as well. When it comes to tobacco control, the irony here, I think it's worth recognizing, is that for decades now, you know, we think of the David and Goliath kind of frame. Tobacco control has been David, and the industry, the cigarette industry, has been uh, Goliath. What's shifted in recent years is, and there's some good aspects to this, the traditional tobacco control groups have developed greater resources. I think many people are aware of the fact that that there is support from uh, the Bloomberg Foundation, for example. And, and there's a lot of good that comes from that because the tobacco industry has overwhelmed the debate and in many ways owned you know, public figures, government decision makers for many uh, decades. Uh, and that has to be recognized. But when it comes to this particular issue, um, there's an overwhelming imbalance in power, ironically, where the traditional groups now have, it seems to me, my friends there, have more influence over the process. And then you've got millions of individual people, um, in, in some cases less educated, more marginalized, uh, disenfranchised in certain ways, who have been using vaping products and succeeded in helping themselves and, and their families uh, by those means, but who tend to be ignored or distrusted, uh, or you know, dissed, <laughs> and and as a result, uh, you know, it, it, people feel that imbalance, and it's something that that I would like to see corrected, where people come together and really communicate in a civil manner. How did, in your mind, how did the priority of getting adult smokers to quit smoking morph into a battle to eradicate e-cigarettes? It's a great question, and I continue to try to figure that out for myself. Um, everyone knows and can look to the phenomenon of the last three to four years where youth vaping prevalence, that is the, the number of kids who use vaping products, it doesn't go to how much they use it, but the number of kids increased substantially within a couple of years in the United States. Uh, do It appears largely to the promotion and growing popularity at the time of Juul. And that raised a whole lot of concern in the US. I think that's a concern that's legitimate. It should be recognized. Uh, but what it did is it brought all of the attention to that issue. And it seemed to drain attention from the ongoing effort, which is so fundamental to tobacco control and it's you know, hoped for success uh, on adults. Adults make up the vast majority of smokers of tobacco users in the US, and there are 34 million of them, there are millions more in Canada uh, and, and elsewhere. And 
while the great majority of those adults say that they would like to quit quit smoking, um, too many of them fail in those efforts because it's very difficult to stop. And half of all long-term smokers are going to die prematurely and painfully and expensively and at the cost of their families and their friends and coworkers uh, because they've been unable uh, to quit. That has got to be the, the, the highest priority in this. And while there is still you know, attention given to it and there is a degree of lip service given to it, it really seems to have fallen off the radar in favor of focusing on vaping by kids. And I know we'll be talking more about that. Well, and that is the very next question is that many in the vaping world believe tobacco control have thrown adult smokers under the bus in order to protect youth. Is there some justification for this belief? I I think there's some justification for the reasons I was just describing. And, you know, what I'm troubled by is the is the misrepresentation of information. I think people deserve to know the truth about things. And yet we've seen, for example, uh, the continued accusations that vaping will cause something called popcorn lung because of an ingredient uh, or chemical found in or produced uh, by, by some vaping products. And yet there's a complete absence of that actually happening anywhere. And yet it continues to be a talking point. There have been great concerns and they're legitimate ones to look at that the, the many kids who have tried vaping may transition as a result of that and becoming dependent on nicotine to smoking, to using the really harmful combustible products. Um, that argument that there's a gateway from one to the other has really been a concern. It's also a talking point but the science doesn't appear to really be bearing that out clearly. And the reality, and this is something that we really have to keep in mind, is that while vaping increased among kids in recent years, smoking has plummeted to historically low levels. So that while about 35% of high school seniors were smoking in the mid 1990s, it's down to about four and a half percent nationally in the US. Something's happened there, but it's virtually ignored in this in this discussion. What would you say in your opinion, I would say professional opinion coming from tobacco control, what is the truth about vaping? Well, you know, in 2017, the commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration, Scott Gottlieb, uh, and the head of the Center for Tobacco Products at the FDA, Mitch Seller, two extremely well-informed and influential people in this field proposed that there is a continuum of risk across different tobacco products. And let me just say parenthetically that in the United States, uh, vaping products are classified as and regulated as tobacco products because they have nicotine derived from tobacco, but it's critical to understand that they don't contain tobacco. But they posited that this continuum of risk uh, should be a way that we uh, helps us frame how to view these products and and regulate them for health and safety. So at the far end, at the dangerous end of that spectrum, that continuum are Marlboro cigarettes or any any combusted 
cigarette producing 7,000 chemicals, 60 to 70 known human carcinogens, chemicals that cause cancer in people. At the other far end would be the medicines that are regulated in the US by the FDA that are used in smoking cessation, nicotine replacement therapies or NRT. So that's you know the gum, the patch, there's a nicotine inhaler, a couple of other products. And those are regulated and authorized as uh, safe and effective. Now in between is where everything else lies, the, the jewels, the other e-cigarettes. And, and this is something that is not well understood, but is conflated or confused, I think, in some of the dialogue that comes from the traditional uh, health groups. You mentioned popcorn lung, uh, Cliff. I mean, I don't want to have to dig through examples, but I'm sure that charge has been made by one of the three main health groups, one of the ones you might have even been working for. You know, it, it's hard to sort out sometimes, uh, but they disseminate a lot of information. There are probably hundreds of groups in the U.S. who engage in this this area. Many of them are not expert, by the way. They receive information. It kind of becomes diffuse. Where where is the where are the talking points coming from? Where is the information coming from? You know, in the U.S., we've got a, a very sort of uh, to use the word again a diffuse sort of political system. Um, I'm in Michigan. I'm in one of the 50 states, and then within the states, there are thousands of local jurisdictions, and this activity is taking place everywhere at all levels uh, of government. But people get information and then disseminate it regarding well things like popcorn lung, the concern about uh, the gateway from vaping to smoking. Uh, they will disseminate information about how vaping products have been said in some research that's been produced to uh, to lead to lung illness or or heart disease. Um, and then, really, you know, the two big things I would add to that are misperceptions about nicotine. We can talk some more about that. I think it's critical that that addictive drug in in these products. And then the whole what was called the E-Valley phenomenon that emerged a couple of years ago and involved these serious lung injuries and led to a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of fear mongering, and a lot of misrepresentation, I think, by by health groups about what was going on. So let's just um, jump into E-Valley. But before we do that, I mean, do you believe that vaping is as harmful or even more harmful than smoking? Because that certainly is the public belief today. Of course not. Uh, of course not. You know, the complexity here lies in the fact that even within among vaping products, there's a spectrum of products, uh, the, the information regarding exactly what they emit and in what amounts among different products is not yet clear uh, in the U.S. We hope to have that clarified more later this year, by the way when the Food and Drug Administration starts to uh, render its decisions uh, uh, after reviewing uh, the products that have been submitted uh, to their pre-market tobacco product approval process. This has been something uh, that's been looked to for several years now. But you know, the, the fact is, again, that anything that's burned, cigarettes, when, when the contents are burned, they produce thousands of chemicals, many dozens of cancer-causing substances and burning combustion is the bottom line there products that are heated below a certain temperature will produce some chemicals some of them that appear in cigarette smoke but by and large in much lower quantities at much lower 
levels. And the evidence to date suggests that they're much less hazardous, whatever the percentage is, much less hazardous. And for those smokers who have been unable or unwilling to quit smoking um, using conventional regulated medicines or by other means, e-cigarettes, vaping products, have for a number of people provided an alternative. And it's not simple, and we can talk more about you know, how that plays out. But, uh, but this is because these products are clearly in general less hazardous. This might be an odd question, but you know, we've done a lot of interviews over the last four years on this topic. And often we kind of get to a kind of a glimpse that maybe tobacco control considers smokers weak. And, and part of that weakness is the addiction to nicotine and thus allowing them to stay addicted to nicotine is somehow, you know, allowing them to, to continue on with an addiction that while might not be all that bad for you, it's still a weakness. Yeah. You know, I, I tend to think of this in terms of what some people have deemed the moral panic around vaping and the use of nicotine. Now, I think we should consider separately, perhaps, the issues surrounding children, very young people using this drug versus, versus adults. Uh, I don't think nicotine is exactly like caffeine. And I turn to experts on these questions, like Neil Benowitz at the University of California, San Francisco, who was the uh, co-editor of the Surgeon General's report on nicotine addiction and other scientists who specialize in this area. So I don't depend on myself to understand the science as an attorney, even though I've been up to my neck in these issues for, for many, many years. But, you know, nicotine does not cause the cancer and heart disease and other serious illnesses by and large suffered by tens over time, actually hundreds of millions uh, of smokers. Nicotine causes physical dependency, and if it's combined with some other chemicals, that dependency can be reinforced. But the problem is when it's delivered from what's been called a dirty needle. The cigarette is a dirty needle. Uh, vaping products are not like cigarettes. And that's really the issue. It shouldn't be nicotine per se, but it should be what harm co comes to the individual as a result of using nicotine in different products across that continuum of risk. Now, certainly nicotine, though, has been demonized thoroughly. There's plenty of doctors out there that today would answer the question that nicotine causes cancer. So this pattern of misinformation, how do we get to that? Because, or And would you agree there's a pattern of misinformation? There, there is a pattern of misinformation uh, for a variety of reasons. And it's something that in this discussion really concerns me a great deal. So uh, Michael Steinberg at Rutgers in New Jersey uh, and colleagues in recent months produced a study showing that uh, approximately 80% of physicians misunderstand the role that nicotine plays and believe, and these are the physicians who guide millions of patients across you know, this country and elsewhere, misunderstand what nicotine does and doesn't do. And they think that it's responsible for those illnesses rather than understanding that it fuels the epidemic of cigarette smoking because of its dependency causing properties, but it doesn't cause the illness. So they, 
don't understand and how can they possibly then guide their patients uh, correctly that if you separate the nicotine from the dirty needle, then you're dealing with something quite different. And that gets into the whole area of harm reduction. So this misinformation that's out there, you know, is it your belief that the mainstream tobacco control community is ignoring the science on vaping? I think the mainstream tobacco control community has focused unduly on nicotine addiction in the interest of protecting kids primarily, where there's concern about the impact that it may have on uh, young people's brain development, et cetera. Um, but, but in the course of doing that, they have demonized nicotine. And if you demonize nicotine, which appears in all of these products, then you by extension are demonizing all of these products and you're doing it equally and conflating uh, harms, you know, that are, are, are very, you know, very different among these different, different products. So people are misinformed and the decisions they make and then the policy decisions that are made by legislators, you know, are based on misinformation as well. We're winding our way through uh, to the issues around uh, E-Valley, the so-called vaping-related lung illness, because I, I, that's had such a huge impact on things, but it's by far not the only thing that, you know, before that happened, there was the epidemic of teen use, and it just seemed to be that the breathless, incessant promotion of what the new cool thing being jewel out there served to be the largest marketing and promotion for the youth epidemic. It was tobacco control itself. Yeah. You know, I'll comment on, on the terminology here that you've raised having to do with, uh, having deemed, uh, youth vaping, uh, the phenomenon as an epidemic. I know for a fact, that language is chosen sometimes not based purely on its scientific merit, but it's chosen to make a point. It's chosen to send a message and influence behavior. And uh, I wasn't there in the deliberations at the Centers for Disease Control or in the Surgeon General's office or at the, the Food and Drug Administration when this was being hammered out. But I can tell you that among some colleagues uh, at the American Cancer Society, and elsewhere, we didn't think it was the right word. Um, you wouldn't have heard that publicly, but we were concerned that it really didn't fit the definition of epidemic. But when you had the Surgeon General announce that this is an epidemic, and then that mantle was picked up by my friends in the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids at other leading organizations, and then on Capitol Hill in, in Washington, you, you just heard epidemic uh, everywhere. Now, I get it because I've specialized in messaging for many years in this field and in, in the interest of promoting public health, you, you need to get people to pay attention and you want people to act on your guidance, your advice, your concerns, but there was some misrepresentation involved. And I think now, it would behoove some of the leaders in this area, both in government and among the non-governmental organizations, to level with the American people and people elsewhere and say, you know, this really isn't at the level of epidemic, but we do have a serious concern about the number of kids who are being exposed to nicotine. But at the same time, we want folks to understand that there 
there are gradations here, there are nuances, that these products are not all the same. They are not all created equal. And that there actually is an opportunity here to also help millions of adults uh, you know, use products that may help save their lives. And, and that's, that's really you know, the essence of what I think we need to be focusing on now is, is leveling with people, giving them the most accurate information possible and, and pull back on the vitriol and the, the, the easy misrepresentations that I, I think come, these shorthands that, that people use to try to make the case. You write in your letter, this pandemic is one of lost integrity, internal warfare, and ideological polarization between those who seek to marginalize or even eradicate e-cigarettes and those who advocate their use for harm reduction in adult smokers. This pandemic misrepresents scientific findings and misleads the public, the media, and health professionals about the science. Please explain that for us. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. I think I included a lot in, in a few sentences. The, the lost integrity has to do with this. Those of us who have been working in tobacco control for a very long time have been in a kind of a pitched battle with the major manufacturers of cigarettes who had at their disposal essentially all the resources. What have we had on our side to offer the public and decision makers? We've had the truth, what we have believed to be the truth. We've had scientific information. When I was working to remove smoking from airplanes in the late 1980s, we had at our disposal a Surgeon General's report from 1986 on exposure to secondhand smoke and another major scientific report from the National Academy of Sciences. That's what we had to use. The integrity that we bring to the table based on scientific evidence-based information and being able to level with people and tell them the truth is critical. And what's happened in these last uh, handful of years in the battle over e-cigarettes is as we've discussed, that there have been misrepresentations made to the public uh, by health organizations. I think uh, in some cases by government, whether it's the CDC or, or the FDA, uh, misrepresentations about uh, what these products do, what nicotine does uh, or doesn't do. And, and there's lost integrity when, when that happens. In your opinion, what single event, if there is one event that you could point to, which did the most damage to vaping's cause? Well, in the last few years, clearly, big events were, I'll call it the jewel phenomenon, where the company was shown to have aimed some of its marketing efforts uh, and through social media and influencers and the like at, at young people. Uh, from all appearances, the company is taking a different direction now, but it still is held up as the poster child. I think that's something to be considered. The Avali phenomenon was really significant. I note, noted in my commentary, for example, that the, the scare around that, and Evali had to do, of course, in reality, as was determined fairly early on with, with the use of uh, THC, the, the uh, pharmacologically active component of cannabis, combined with vitamin E acetate, which ended up causing some serious lung injuries, but uh, it was conflated into, well, e-cigarettes may kill you. And what I shared in the commentary, and this isn't the reason I did it, but it helped informs me personally. I have a niece and her 
her boyfriend now, now fiance, um, who had switched to Juul uh, in recent years, young adults, and they switched back to smoking cigarettes because they thought Juul might kill them. Now, how did that happen? How did that happen? It happened because there was a failure of conveying accurate, simple information. And once it was understood what Evali was all about, you know, what is the E in Evali? It refers to e-cigarettes. It's not even an e-cigarette problem. It should be renamed and there should be bulletins sent out letting people know what's going on so that you don't go back and start smoking Marlboro when you had switched to a, a vaping product. So, so that's, that's what's gone on in recent years. And I think those are really major events in, uh, in sort of directing what's taken place in kind of a bad direction. The uh, vaping-related lung illness, so-called, the E-Valley, so-called, has been, well, it has been responsible for at least probably 40 to 50% destruction of the industry. There, there, are, there are peoples whose lives, careers, businesses got wiped out by that. Not to mention, there absolutely has been people that have returned to smoking. How, how come that's not gotten through to, say, the CDC and so forth? FDA made things clear on October 4th. The CDC took to, I believe, January of 2020. Yeah, well, they act cautiously. And in certain respects, that's very important. That's, that's good. I get, I get that. But once it was clear, uh, they should have made it very, very clear and done it in ways that reached people. I think what you just noted about the local vape shops, the, the mom and pop sort of part of the industry, is itself a sort of a social justice issue. And I've gotten to know some of the folks who work at, on the ground, work at that level, who actually engage with consumers. And to hear them tell their stories have really played a role in, in helping a lot of people, helping a lot of people out there. And it's been kind of a crime that, that this has harmed uh, their businesses when they've actually been doing uh, public good in many cases. I, I do think it's important that the FDA get to this point, uh, hopefully starting late summer this fall in, uh, in regulating these products in a way that will help us communicate with you know, government authorization about the health and safety features of these products. But you know, uh, the, the fact that Evalley so twisted the discussion about this, and that the whole focus, uh, an important focus, but it shouldn't have been the whole focus turned toward uh, protecting, in many cases, well-to-do suburban high school students. And I don't turn, mean to turn this into a class war, but that tended to be whom, whom we were talking about, while leaving the tens of millions of smokers more or less out there in the cold. Uh, really was a problem. And it's something that we need to course correct on. You said in your commentary, uh, you described it, I believe, as conflation in news reports and shading by some public health organizations and advocates with regard to the vaping-related lung illness. What did you mean by that? Well, I, I've seen, I think we've all seen many instances where in a single argument, in a single description, uh, disseminated by some of the, the advocates of essentially doing away with vaping products or really, really severely uh, limiting them, uh, saying these products, uh, because of flavors, are addicting a lot of people and they are um, leading to serious lung injury. Well, whoops. I mean, flavors are a controversial area. The FDA is now reviewing 
a lot of this. And so we'll see how they come down on, on regulation around all of the ingredients used in, in vaping products that have been submitted for review. But to argue that without really explaining what you're talking about, that the serious lung injuries are somehow tied to that is, is kind of the big lie because Evali, you know, is responsible for those injuries. And, and Evali was not caused by, you know, name your vaping product. Um, it, it wasn't. It was caused by illicit products, street products, and the use of THC with, with vitamin E acetate. And once they cracked down on that, Evali has all but disappeared. And it never even presented itself in other jurisdictions. There was a little bit of concern in Canada, probably some from some products that came from the U.S., but if you go to the Europe, you go to Britain, there was no Evali. It was pretty clear that this wasn't a fundamental issue with regard right. to vaping products. That's that's exactly right. And yet it started to cause some problems elsewhere because what happens in America tends to travel. The news travels. People are concerned. Oh, you know, are we going to have this problem here where we are now? And you're correct. It didn't really emerge in other places. But, you know, I'll just add when we're talking about nicotine again, that nicotine kept getting implicated in this. They, folks in their, in their messaging would talk about these nicotine containing vaping products. Lots of youth are getting addicted and using them. People are ending up in the hospital with double lung transplants in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, it's terrible, for example, you know, pointing to that example, that this young man in high school ended up with a double lung transplant uh, in, in Detroit in the last couple of years. But I've seen interviews with him where even though on Twitter at one point he acknowledged in, in media interviews that he had used THC and almost Certainly, that's why he ended up so ill and having this life-saving operation. But in these interviews, uh, people don't talk about that at all. They say, you vaped, didn't you? And what would you advise kids to do? Well, don't vape. Well, let's be honest. That is conflating things. And while I don't want kids to vape or use nicotine either, we have to give people the truth so they know what's going on. Have you had these conversations uh, with your colleagues you know, cancer, heart, lung, campaign for tobacco-free kids? Yeah, we, well, we talk regularly and uh, we, we are in meetings together. We are colleagues. We're colleagues and on a lot of big issues, we are really truly uh, on the same side. I mean, think about it because we, we work on smoke-free air policy. Uh, we work on, you know, counting, countering cigarette company marketing at the retail level and in other ways. You know, we, we all support doing away with cigarette company discounting of cigarettes to make Marlboro cheaper, you know, in, in urban areas, uh, for example. We do talk about these other issues as well, certainly. But I think one of the places where we may part ways is going back to the sort of ideological divide, if you will, and the huge distrust uh, of industry. And I think that some of my friends on the, the traditional mainstream end of things uh, see industry influencing too many of these arguments. They don't want to talk about nuance because it fits into what they're concerned is the misleading uh, you know, messaging from, for example, uh, Philip Morris uh, about their claimed intent to pursue a smoke-free world. Well, my colleagues don't believe that. I have my skepticism 
about that as well. But as a result of that, they don't really want to be talking about a lot of these things publicly because they think it will help industry and prolong the epidemic. So this this is where things get a little bit complicated. So to bring down big tobacco, vaping has to go with it. Well, it's kind of playing itself out that way these days in the U.S. Um, Scott Gottlieb, while commissioner of the FDA uh, and and Secretary Azar, the, the head of the Department of Health and Human Services at the time in 2017 or 2018, you know, talked about the continuum of risk and the role that vaping products can play as an off-ramp for smokers. They talked about the risk that they may serve as an on-ramp for kids to, to nicotine. That was the right kind of framing. It, it honestly addressed the opportunities and challenges here. But what we've got going on right now is an almost total focus on the on-ramp concern among kids. And we've kind of thrown to the side the, the opportunity and even the promise that alternative nicotine delivery products might have for tens and even worldwide hundreds of millions of adults who otherwise haven't been able to quit smoking. Cliff, do you believe tobacco harm reduction is or should be a social justice issue? Harm reduction is a social justice issue. And there are ways in which people understand this more easily. You know, the, for example, when it, what do people think of with harm reduction? It's, it's needle exchanges. It's, it's uh, methadone being offered instead of heroin. Uh, and and the, in, in those cases, many of the users, many of the vulnerable people who are affected uh, are those with fewer means who are less educated, they may come from certain uh, racial or ethnic subpopulations. They are, in many cases, uh, living with mental illness. And the same is true in the area of tobacco use, and particularly cigarette smoking. What we need to do here is recognize that uh, uh, a majority of smokers today come from these more vulnerable, marginalized, at-risk populations. It's all about social justice. How can we reach them? How can we support them? What are the safer, healthier options that we can offer at low cost uh, or lower cost that will enable them to free themselves of this addiction that will kill half of them if they continue long term? As we seek to encourage people to get vaccinated, to protect themselves against the coronavirus, you know, we've got a lot of doubters in the United States. They're concerned now that we won't reach herd immunity because people don't trust what they hear from government. They don't trust what they hear from government scientific experts. Now they're wrong in this case, in my view, and people need to get vaccinated. But you know, if we are misleading or confounding the truth around such things as the, the science of vaping, and whether vaping products you know, are or aren't less hazardous than combusted cigarettes, well, then we're giving people reason to be confused and not doubt, or, and, and to doubt the, the truth uh, that they're hearing from, from government authorities. So you know, this is the conundrum, I think, that we're facing in that regard. You know, there have been health groups who have said explicitly to people that smoking and vaping will increase your chances of contracting COVID. And it's simply not scientifically correct. I mean, it's just not. It's easy to say, 
there is an example of where the the messaging you know sort of a means to an end you want to try to encourage people to quit smoking well yes indeed you do but smoking has been demonstrated to worsen the uh, the effects if you contract covid the connections between vaping and covid are uh, much less clear and yet the messaging has pretty much conflated it all together and said you're going to get covid more likely if you smoke or vape that's a huge huge problem because think about the obvious impact that will have on the decision-making of individuals when they're trying to decide what to do. And it also throws vaping and smoking into the same bucket again. So they can't distinguish one product from another and make more rational decisions about what might help save their lives. You write in your letter about the ideological polarization between those who seek to marginalize or even eradicate e-cigarettes and those who advocate their use for harm reduction in adult smokers. Are you able to put your finger on what those opposing ideologies are? Well, there are various ways of looking at it. You know, one has to do with, and it's something that I understand and appreciate from having worked on this for so many years, the distrust of industry. And you see uh, among the, some of the health groups, for example, uh, a distrust of anything that involves the involvement of uh, of industry, and I say industry broadly because you know there are the the sort of traditional major cigarette manufacturers, the the Altrias, Philip Morris's, Imperials, British American Tobaccos of the world. But then there's an industry that that is separate from them, and it's you know in many in many cases piecemeal with local vape shops and the like who you know produce vaping products. Well, those industries are not created equal and, and applying the same word industry to all of them. It, it doesn't really make sense in certain respects. But if industry is involved, the ideal ideology says you can't trust anything they say. You can't trust anything they produce. And and then, you know, anyone who's making decisions in government around this, you know, should consider anything that they say or produce with a grain of salt. I get where that comes from. Because there was a reason that a federal court in 2006 ruled that the major cigarette manufacturers, you know, are, are racketeers for having conspired and committed fraud on, on the public. But the ideology on the other side, if you will, is quite different. It has to do with how can we help uh, people quit smoking, uh, you know, get off of those products that will in many cases kill them and, and either quit nicotine entirely or at least use much less harmful products. And it's just looking at the world through very different lenses. Going back to the work that uh, you may have directly worked on, but certainly know about through the 90s and I guess into the 2000s, that whole legal battle to try to get nicotine defined as addictive, which was really the linchpin for so much of the public health win with regards to tobacco. Mm -hmm. Are we paying the price a little bit for what needed to be done then to get that win? And now nicotine is, you know, is demonstratized. Yeah, so so here's an irony and we, we touched on it earlier. And that is that when it comes to what matters about nicotine, it's all about the delivery vehicle. And the, the demonization of nicotine has actually interfered with cessation efforts as well, because nicotine is used in medicines. It's used in gum, 
Well, it shouldn't really be called gum because you're not supposed to chew it. That's another problem. People don't know how to properly use the cessation product. You're supposed to park it the, and leave it there. It's used in, uh, in the patch or plaster, as they say in the UK. It's used in regulated inhalers. It's now, of course, in, in vaping products. But what it's done is it has led people to, uh, to resist using these medicines long enough or effectively enough to help them actually quit smoking. Uh, I think that this war on nicotine has come with some consequences. Uh, it, it, it makes all the sense in the world to make clear to people that nicotine in cigarettes, uh, because of the cigarette itself, is very likely to kill you and it will certainly make you sick. Uh, but when it comes to this continuum of risk, it can and is used in other products which have quite a different effect and can actually be helpful. In the US, and we're seeing it in Canada, pretty much the result of stuff like E-Valley and the youth use issue and so forth, Health Canada seems to be unwinding uh, the legalization that just passed in 2018 under the pressure from Canada's health groups, cancer, heart, lung, uh, pushing uh, Health Canada into flavor bans. And um, in the U.S., of course, you've got the vape mail issue, which is the shutdown of, you know, being able to ship vaping products. You've got flavor bans in many states. And then you've got uh, federally, you've got the Democrats trying to push through the first ever federal vaping tax. I mean, this these are a result of the misinformation, are they not? Well, uh, I think I think that they they are certainly in part. And the example that you gave about the the vaping tax being considered in Congress. What they're looking to do in the US Congress right now is to equalize uh, all tobacco product taxes. So traditionally for many years, we've argued that cigarette taxes should be raised because we know that that is actually among all of the policy options, the single most effective way to rapidly and dramatically reduce consumption uh, of that product. Now, uh, at the same time, if you introduce a vaping tax and then you put it at parity with the tax on cigarettes, then what you're doing is you are uh, essentially at a certain level, at least indirectly incentivizing using cigarettes rather than switching to other products because there's no financial advantage to switching to a vaping product if, if, if you have, you know, increase the price substantially through taxation. And, and that just is based on a faulty premise. Again, I turn to the experts in this area to help guide my understanding of it. So for example, uh, Ken Warner, who, whom I think you've interviewed before, who is the former Dean of the School of Public Health at the University of Michigan and a very long time close colleague and kind of an icon in my career. Uh, you know, he, he can explain very well that perhaps the ideal approach to this is to raise, you know, impose some taxes on vaping products and try to price them through careful study out of the range of most high school students, for example, who are very price sensitive. But don't raise it so much that you disincentivize and make it too difficult for adult smokers to buy those products in lieu of buying, again, the most harmful combustible products. I don't think adults have a problem paying some tax around vaping, but they want to know that that tax you're paying is helping to secure vaping, access to vaping products and flavors, 
as a resource to stay quit. The buzzword here is differential. There should be differential taxation. There should be differential approaches to addressing access to products, disincentivizing, making more difficult getting the very harmful products, incentivizing, making easier under a controlled sort of structure, the availability uh, of of those products that people can use as an off-ramp from cigarettes, either to quit or if they need nicotine maintenance over a period of time, and that's their choice to, to, to do that. You know, the, the, the marketing should be controlled according, again, to where products fall on the continuum of risk. Uh, in, in my ideal scenario, uh, all marketing for the Demoriers and, and other combustible products would, would essentially be wiped away. But people should be made aware of uh, and have, in, in a sense, uh, sensible marketing directed to them for the use of alternative products that might actually help save their lives. I mean, that's what makes sense to me. Fundamentally, is part of the problem here simply the fact, I mean, this is from a practical uh, point of view, is that the language calls vaping a tobacco product. You have that in legislation. You've got that in science and research. You've got that in public health communication. Um, and so if it's a tobacco product, well, it's a hazard. That's it, period. Right? So Yeah. It, yes. I, I mean, you, you make a good point. Uh, language, language is just of, of huge importance here. And, and the irony is that if I recall correctly, uh, the reason that, that vaping products ended up being classified as regulated as tobacco products in the US is that the Food and Drug Administration was sued by vaping interests to uh, prevent it from regulating vaping products as, as drugs under the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research at the FDA. Instead, and the court agreed, requiring the FDA to regulate them under the Center for Tobacco Products as tobacco products. Now, there was a good reason for that, because if you just limited them to being sold as medications, it could really have circumscribed the market. I get that. But the, I suppose, unintended consequence is that vaping products ended up being labeled tobacco, even though there ain't no tobacco in these products. And so that's something that we've had to wrestle with ever since. The irony of all ironies, that is absolutely true. So look, let me ask you this. Do you think that U.S. tobacco control community as a whole is being irresponsible to reality? Well, I wouldn't sweep them aside in a, you know, in a total holistic way. What I would say, uh, and these are my friends and I'm still committed to the, to the cause, is that the tobacco-free kids of the world, uh, the other organizations that I've worked for and with, are really doing uh, a public service and continuing to, to try to you know, uh, make available smoke-free areas for everyone in society you know, where, where possible. Um, clamping down on the activities of the tobacco industry, supporting things like the the menthol mentholated cigarette ban that's just been proposed by the Food and Drug Administration in the interest of social justice and saving more black lives in America and helping kids not be as likely to become addicted. Those are all really good things. But when it comes to irresponsibility, uh, yes, I think that 
my tobacco control community is not acting responsibly in the interest of fully educating and protecting and serving the, the needs and the rights of tens of millions of addicted adult smokers who need better information and better access to products that, again, can save their lives. Have you experienced any backlash or pressure, and I'm sure you must have, from some of your peers in tobacco control? Well, I've, I've had many, um, many discussions with folks in my field. And, you know, I, I have to say to, to the credit of my colleagues, because there are a lot of strong feelings uh, all around, that they've really been respectful conversations. Uh, for those who really may be upset, uh, I'm more likely to just not be hearing from them, to be honest. Uh, but, you know, I'll, I'll see how things play out. I, I do know that we have collaborated very closely for, for my entire adult life, for all intents and purposes. And I look forward to, uh, to, to collaborating closely with, with everyone to the furthest extent possible. And, you know, in the end, uh, it may be an imperfect comparison uh, on many levels, but I think of Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu um, supporting and seeking reconciliation in South Africa many years ago. And if they can do it on those race issues, I think we should be able to pursue some sort of reconciliation and finding of common ground. And I maintain hope around that, uh, around you know these issues that we're, we're looking at here today. In hindsight, looking back at your time with the American Cancer Society, is there a deliberation you were involved in or a course of action planned and taken for which you believe now was short-sighted or maybe even wrong? Well, you know, what I tend to look back on at the American Cancer Society was, and I'm proud of this, a rather forward-looking effort to promote eliminating the, the, uh, the epidemic of combustible tobacco use in the United States. We focused on the U.S. And we produced a, a, a you know, well-regarded paper where we re really laid out a plan. We left room there for people moving to vaping products or other products uh, who couldn't completely uh, acquit uh, otherwise. And, you know, it's still, by the way, on cancer.org. If you go to the website, uh, the American Cancer Society uh, public health statement on eliminating combustible tobacco use in the United States is still there. And I think that was a really wonderful thing. But what I do know is that is not the priority these days. And I suspect that the organization, other than leaving it there, which I'm glad of, is not really pointing to that anymore because most of the efforts are around uh, preventing youth vaping. And final question, if there is to be detente, a, a ceasefire and peace, what does that look like? Well, we're, we're working on that. And I'm in discussions with many people, including leaders uh, in the field. And uh, I think ideally, in one way or another, we will bring uh, uh, some leaders, key stakeholders uh, to some type of table where we can sit down and again, look at that Venn diagram and see where we can meet. Uh, this is gonna be no easy task. I don't know exactly where things end up, but we should do it sooner rather than later. We have a lot to accomplish. Uh, the FDA for its part and the rest of society in many other ways uh, has a huge task ahead of it. And cigarette smoking remains the leading cause of preventable death 
premature death, and we gotta do a better job of tackling that challenge.